For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Nearly three decades after Omar al-Bashir came to power, the regime faced a formidable challenge posed by a fresh wave of unrest that started in northeastern city of Atbara on December 19th of last year. Protests which first erupted over a government decision to triple the price of bread swiftly escalated into anti-government rallies, marches, and work stoppages. On April 6th, on the anniversary of the nonviolent uprising that removed the dictator Jafar Nomeiri in 1985, the protests in Sudan reached a watershed moment. The protesters turned up the heat on the government by camping outside of the army headquarters in Khartoum, which also houses al-Bashir's resident, calling on the army to help them ouster the country's longtime dictator. On Wednesday, April 11th, the Defense Minister Awad ibn Auf announced that Omar al-Bashir had been ousted and arrested by the military. He added that the army would oversee a two-year transitional period followed by elections and that a three-month state of emergency was being put in place, with a nighttime curfew starting immediately. So what's next for Sudan? To get a clarity on the rapidly changing situation in that country, Shahram Agamir spoke with Khaled Madani, an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University in Canada. Khaled, uh, why don't we start by talking about the key points in the announcement made by Vice President and Defense Minister General Ibn Aouf on Thursday, yes. April 10th where he declared the quote-unquote toppling of the regime yes. and formation of a military-led transitional government which would rule Sudan for two years. Yes, well, there are a number of important points. The first, of course, being, as you mentioned, that there would be the establishment of a military transitional council that would consist of people from the military, oversee what he said is a transition to quote-unquote free and fair elections in two years. That is extremely important. Another uh, very important point uh, having to do with the ouster of Omar Bashir himself is that he suggested or rather directly indicated that the reason, and he explained the reason for the this what I call an internal coup, was that Omar Bashir had insisted on using a great deal of violence uh, to stop the protest and mobilization, and in particular the sit-in that has been uh, ongoing for almost six days now uh, in front of the army headquarters. And uh, uh, Awad uh, Ibn Auf, who is now, of course, the de facto head of state uh, and the military leader of the country, uh, suggested that the army decided that they disagreed with him in terms of the use of violence uh, to quell the protest and disperse the sit-in uh, protesters. And that was one of the main reasons that they ousted him. He also said another important point is that, that Omar Bashir is now in, quote-unquote, a safe location which, of course, has its own implications for the future of Omar Bashir himself and, of course, of the military regime in terms of whether he would be given to international authorities and in particular the International Criminal Court that has indicted him for war crimes. So it's a very important aspect of the statement that he made, which was really important. Another important statement that hasn't been highlighted is that he said that this uh, military transitional council would consist of, of course, the Sudan Armed Forces, of which, he, of course, he's the, the head, but also of the main, basically, security apparatuses of the state, that it would include 
include the National Intelligence and Security Services, headed by Salah Ghosh. And he also suggested that it would include the paramilitary security forces of the rapid support forces headed by Hemiti in the Sudan. It basically was a statement that represented, uh, in his own words as well, the basically objectives of what in Sudan is called the Supreme Intelligence Committee of the Sudan Armed Forces, which included, of course, the includes the Sudan Armed Forces, it includes the intelligence apparatus linked to the state, and even the paramilitary forces. So those are some of the essential points that came with the statement this uh, that he made. The points that he did not make, of course, are equally important, if not more important, and that is, number one, he did not acknowledge that there would be the participation in this interim period of any of the political parties, let alone the uh, members of the opposition association associated with the Sudanese Professional Association. So, so there is no indication that there would be any dialogue or any incorporation of the main actors uh, that are now representing the opposition and, of course, represent the millions who are protesting across the country against what most Sudanese consider an internal military coup that has replaced one military leader uh, for another. So those are some of the important points that he said, but also the key points that he made sure not to point out. And those are the reasons why you have the continuation of the protest and mobilization. Uh, most Sudanese across the country, not only in the capital city of Khartoum, are now calling for the persistence and sustainability of these uh, protests and sit-ins, uh, not only in Khartoum, but throughout the country, in order to, in their own terms, wage a second coup. That is that as many protesters now are chanting that the revolution is not over, and some are even chanting that the revolution has only now begun. How have the opposition groups such as Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, or its acronyms, and other anti-government groups, such as Grifna Resistance Movement, reacted to the announcement. They uh, reacted to the announcement almost immediately. The Sudanese Professional Association went to the sit-in, that is the kind of millions of protesters that now are uh, waging a sit-in in front of the headquarters of the Sudan Armed Forces, and they, number one, uh, completely rejected the statement by Awad ibn Uf. They said that their demands were very clear, and that is that not only was their demand centered around the ouster of Omar Bashir, but they emphasized that throughout the, these uh, four months long protests, they had one central demand and priority, and that was the dismantling and overthrow of the entire regime and its uh, loyalists. And so they made it very clear from the beginning, the Sudanese Professional Association, that they were calling for the ouster of the entire regime, not Omar Bashir, without any conditions. That uh, was the number one priority, number one demand. And the second demand that they made, uh, that they clarified uh, once again and reiterated, was that they were uh, not going to accept another military regime that would undermine the aspirations of the Sudanese people. And they reiterated that their important demand, of course, is to have an interim government that is uh, 
exclusively composed of civilians, civilian politicians and representatives of the opposition and technocrats that would oversee the, the, a four-year transition period to multi-party democracy. They did say that they were willing to have a dialogue with certain segments of the military in terms of how that uh, transition would take place, but that they insisted that it would have to be a civilian government that would oversee and be responsible for overseeing a transition to multi-party democracy. And so there was a full rejection in terms of the statement of the Sudanese professional associations. And in addition to that, of course, they called for the continued protest of the for the protesters and the mobilization against the regime and they called upon the protesters to continue their marches continue their sit-ins and uh, to strike not only in the greater Khartoum area but throughout the region and what we see now of course is uh, and it's this is very important as that following the statement immediately you had even a larger number of people flowing into the square they made down in front of the Sudanese armed head headquarters, making sure to send a clear message that they would not tolerate basically what is an internal coup and the consolidation of the military regime and the ruling party under the guise of um, ousting uh, one individual. That is that they refused to countenance the removal of one thief as the protesters have been chanting for yet another thief. And so it's an unequivocal opposition to the statement and to even giving any legitimacy to this revolutionary or transition, uh, rather the military transitional council. Uh, the other coalition that is extremely important in terms of the opposition is the, the political parties and associations that are associated along with the Sudanese professional associations under the banner of the Declaration of Freedom of Change. Of course, uh, as you know, this is the larger umbrella group that was established in January of this year that incorporates not only the Sudanese professional association, but also the major political parties in opposition and the youth associations that you mentioned, which are also signatories to this larger umbrella of the opposition. That includes the youth organization that you mentioned, Girifna, but also the other key youth movement and organization that is known as Sudan Change Now. Uh, and so that coalition that consists of the larger opposition also quickly came out publicly and put forth a statement, both in social media, in terms of uh, distributing pamphlets and, and their memorandum, also really echoing the opposition that the Sunnis Professional Association has put forth. And they also unequivocally oppose the legitimacy of this military transitional council and the our Dibnerov himself. General Ov talks about the toppling of the regime. Clearly his definition of a regime is very different from the opposition. Maybe you can break it down for us and help us understand who is in charge of Sudan now. I can only imagine it's a collective leadership. These are very much the people who have been in charge. Absolutely. There's no question. I mean, really, the uh, you know, for Sudanese who know, of course, their politics full well, they're very clear about the fact that this is uh, basically a regime that is missing only one individual, and that is Omar Bashir. But all of the stalwarts of the regime, of what was formerly known as the Bashir regime, are still there. 
Uh, you have, of course, the people in charge are uh, Awad ibn Auf himself, who was appointed by Omar Bashir as defense minister. He also has a long history of having been the head of intelligence of the Sudan Armed Forces, also having been appointed by Omar Bashir in the past. Uh, you have also, of course, the very powerful uh, spy or chief of intelligence, Salah Ghosh, who's the head of the National Intelligence Security Service. He's also part of this regime. And you have Hamiti, of course, who is the head of the these paramilitary forces, security forces that are linked to the regime. So the same major characters, of course, remain. Uh, it is, as Sudanese activists are, have made very clear, only a cosmetic change that replaces one face with another, or rather oust Umar Bashir from that regime and those institutions that continue and have continued to uh, rule the country for three decades. Of course, uh, through authoritarianism, repression, and a great deal of violence against any form of opposition. They also make it clear that these are all, uh, without exception, really some of the most important founders of or members of the early Islamist movement that was headed by Hassan Turabi. In fact, almost without exception, all of them have been involved with the, the real expansion and trying to popularize the Islamist movement before it took power in 1989. And all of them following the coup of 1989, the Islamist backed coup of uh, Omar Bashir, immediately were appointed uh, in to high position in the military and the security forces. So these are the same individuals that have essentially been part of the regime and that have been ruling Sudan in conjunction with Omar Bashir for three decades. Uh, it's important to emphasize that because it uh, really helps to explain the rage that is ongoing in Sudan and the continued insistence on the part of the activists and protesters who've been fighting this regime basically for four months, their commitment to the overthrow of what they believe is the regime and the institutions of uh, this authoritarian regime. So it is not something that uh, Sudanese are unaware of, obviously. And this is why they are very much opposed to Awad Ibn Yehof. I do want to mention that uh, for some of your listeners, they may not be familiar with this new leader. And one of the important points to explain, and many activists have made this very clear, and that is that he is not equally brutal, if not even more brutal than Omar Bashir, which is, of course, hard to, <laughs> hard to imagine. But uh, this is an individual that has been uh, sanctioned by the United States and the International Criminal Court for violations of human rights and is associated with, of course, of uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes uh, when he was essentially the head of the intelligence of the Sudan Armed Forces between 2003 and 2007. And he was primarily responsible for issuing directives to militias, especially the Janjaweed militias in Darfur, that were responsible for ethnic cleansing in that region of Sudan and that ended or the resulted in the death and killing of upwards of 300,000 Darfurians in Sudan and the displacement of almost 2 million Darfurians. So he is really, from the perspective of a Sudanese activist, a brutal dictator who has not only blood on his hand, but by any estimation is essentially a war criminal. This is not going to be an autocracy. It's going to be a collective leadership of these notorious leaders who have been taking part in these 
crimes, essentially running state institutions even before these developments? I think that they're a little bit confounded right now. I have to be quite clear about it. Uh, one of the reasons the statement did not actually mention individuals that would be manning or compose this transitional military council is that by all accounts and, Sudanese, and sources in Sudan have informed me personally that there is a great deal of divisions even among the upper ranks of the Sudan armed forces. Uh, that is right now there are intense negotiations between these officers uh, at the higher rank of the Sudan armed forces in terms of uh, what individuals would actually make up this transitional council. So you have not only a rift and, and deep divisions between the uh, upper ranks of the military and middle and, and lower ranking officers, which really is one of the main reasons that uh, Bashir was ousted in order to preserve the unity and integrity, so to speak, of the Sudanese forces. But at the same time, they have divisions between themselves. And this is something that we have to follow closely because who gets appointed to the transitional military council will let us know a little bit more about the composition of this military regime. But the most important point for now to really emphasize is that these are all uh, individuals that are very loyal to each other for instrumental reasons. Uh, many of them, the majority of them actually have been indicted by the International Criminal Court, uh, and they feel that their destiny is really intertwined and their survival is intertwined with each other. Sure. And this is the reasons they preempted any kind of dismantling of the institutions of the regime that is, of course, uh, the central demand of the protesters protesting right now. Given the history of the uprisings in Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, and some other countries in the region, and the way ruling blocs in those countries responded to the mass protests by removing just a handful of individuals from office in an attempt to maintain the status quo, was the Sudanese protest movement surprised by this recent development in their country? Absolutely not. I want to be very clear that the Sudanese Professional Association, I think I've mentioned in this program before, and the youth movements in particular, even more so than the, the political parties, have been calculating and strategizing in terms of what would make this kind of mobilization against authoritarianism successful. And in doing so, not only did they really examine and work towards the expansion of the mobilization and protest across regions and across social classes, they also um, really theorized the different types of scenarios that would occur. And one of those, uh, and it's very important to point out, as I have written and others, of course, scholars have written in a kind of more academic context, for the activists, in particular the Sunnis Professional Association and the youth movements, it has not come as a surprise that there would be an effort to upgrade authoritarianism, so to speak in academic jargon or to consolidate authoritarianism. That is to basically oust one individual and replace him with, with another that has been historically, on, is part of the regime and its institutions, as happened in Egypt, as happening so far in Algeria. This kind of scenario has been one that is something that has been discussed and talked about. And even before this latest statement, the Sudanese Professional Association had cautioned those who are sitting in the, the hundreds and thousands and some say millions sitting in, in front of the of Sudanese uh, armed forces headquarters, that it was likely 
that this kind of scenario would happen. And you can see this, by the way, in social media for uh, months before even the protests uh, even became as large as they have been, and be even before the, the sit-in that's been ongoing for the past six days. They had pamphlets and signs telling protesters that do not be fooled if there was by any chance an announcement by either Bashir or anyone in the military that Bashir was going to step down and the military was going to replace him with someone else. And they insisted on sending this message to protesters and saying in Arabic, quote unquote, and I'm quoting here, that this kind of scenario would in no way indicate that victory has come to us. And this is why you find that after this statement, there were very, in fact, no pro protesters left their locations. Uh, they continued to protest and to wage their sit-in and to make it clear that their demand was unequivocal and unconditional, and that was the institutions of the regime and, and the people whom, who are in charge or heading this regime have to be removed. There has to be a transition that is composed of individuals who are not affiliated with not only the Islamist movement, but also even some say kind of the old guard of the political parties. It would be composed of independent technocrats representing the different forces from the opposition in a transition of four years that would oversee multi-party democracy. And this is why this kind of scenario had been calculated. And this is why you now see that the protests have, in fact, expanded. Today, you had larger protests and larger numbers in front of the army headquarters, uh, larger numbers than you even had on April 6th when the, the sit-in first began. Remind us who these protesters are. Has there been a change in the makeup of classes and social groups participating in these protests? after four months of upheaval. Yes, absolutely. Over time, I think that when I first uh, spoke to you in this program, it was in the first month of the protest, if, if I'm correct. And in that first month, uh, there was a question, and I had asked, you had asked it of me, and uh, I had asked it of myself, and that, that is, to what extent would the expansion of these uh, protests include and encompass uh, not only the different regions, but if different social groups? It really was a question mark. I remember on this program, saying that the success of uh, this kind of mobilization and protest would depend not only on the sustainability, but also on the success of the leaders of these protests, the success in terms of them really being able to expand the protest across social classes. In the past uh, three months, there is absolutely no question that the leaders of these protests or those who have been co coordinating, in particular the Sudanese Professional Association, has registered remarkable success in expanding this movement from its middle class base, so to speak, uh, not only across the regions, but across working class neighborhoods and the poorer quarters of the Greater Khartoum area. Those areas, particularly the working class areas of Greater Khartoum, you know, neighborhoods such as uh, Burri in Khartoum North, uh, Wad Nubawi in Umdurman, these are solid working class neighborhoods, and they have actually been the ones that have been the most important sites of protest and the ones that have sustained protest in the case of Burri uh, literally on a daily basis. In the case of Wad Nubawi in, this, in the town of Umdurman, each Friday, the, without fail, they have gone to the streets. So what began essentially, at least in Khartoum, 
what began as a middle class movement has not only expanded into the working class neighborhoods of Greater Khartoum, uh, those working class neighborhoods and uh, other neighborhoods surrounding the Greater Khartoum areas have been actually and have played the greatest role in sustaining the protest. And this is really something that even I think that having spoken to them, some of the leaders of the Sudanese professional associations were not 100% sure would actually materialize. What we see even more recently, by the way, and this is also important, is that you have some of the wealthiest quarters and neighborhoods of the Greater Khartoum joining the protest. Some of the most you know, wealthiest business families and entities and corporations in the private sector, those that are not actually uh, linked uh, to the regime, which are few, have not only joined the protest and the mobilization, they have now also provided services, they provided food, they provided water. Uh, and so this is an absolute remarkable expansion in terms of its uh, the kind of the, the social basis of this movement. And I don't think that you necessarily see that kind of expansion across the social classes in uh, the other Arab countries so far. Although one has to say that in Algeria, there's been a, a remarkably expansion across regions, which is something that is extremely, uh, extremely notable. So in that sense, there are similarities. But I would say the Sudanese Professional Association has been remarkably successful in expanding these protests across regions, which is then, uh, very significant, and also throughout the social stratum of, and social segments of societies. You also have the incorporation or the joining in by traditionally Sufi organizations that have been in general supporting the Islamist regime. And these include a number of very influential Sufi Muslim, as we call them in Sudan, and organizations that have joined wholeheartedly, not only in the marches, but also now in the sit-in in front of the army headquarters. What can you tell us about the organizational characteristics and leadership of the protest movement in Sudan? Uh, well, I think that it's very important to ask this question for a number of reasons. And one of the most important ones is that you see in the coverage of Sudan, because there is insistence on comparing Sudan, I think, to other Arab countries, uh, a real insistence or at least a bias towards this notion that the uh, opposition is somehow weak. Even some Sudanese analysts, I would argue, have made that claim that uh, there is really no one to speak to, that uh, a transition, a civilian transition, would be weakened by the fact that you have weak political parties and a weak opposition. And I would like to argue that that's the furthest thing from the truth. Oftentimes, the way that political parties in the Arab world are circumscribed, uh, whether it's in Egypt or Algeria, and how civil society is, of course, also delimited by the authoritarian policies of Arab regimes, gives one the impression that even in Sudan that that is the case. And that is not true. I think the Sunnis Professional Association has demonstrated very clearly that they are an extremely legitimate, extremely even powerful, and of course, independent opposition movement. I think that by January of this year, it was very clear that they were joined wholeheartedly by the majority, in fact, all of the main opposition political parties under the banner of the Declaration of Freedom of Change. Uh, you have one side, uh, an opposition coalition that is called Sudan Call or Nida Sudan that includes the Ummah Party and two important insurgent organizations from Darfur. That's very important. It also includes the Sudan uh, Congress Party. Uh, you also have the, the National Consensus Forces that includes the Communist Party, a very important party in the opposition. And all of these have come together uh, with the Sudanese Professional Association in order to 
make it clear uh, to the Sudanese population, first and foremost, that there were uh, legitimate, independent political parties and civil society organizations that are more than capable of overseeing a transition to a civilian government and multi-party democracy. This is an extremely important point because in the coverage of Sudan and in even uh, because of its linkages to the Arab uprisings and other Arab countries there, this aspect is underestimated and it's a source of concern for those who may you know, wish upon Sudan some form of democracy or consolidating democracy, but are wary of the fact that perhaps there is a, a deep state of the kind of that is so authoritarian and dictatorial that it has decimated civil society and political party opposition. That is not the case in Sudan. I did want to reiterate what I did in previous programs, and that is, in this case, Sudan, I think, that uh, should be compared to African countries that have had, uh, let's say, for lack of a better term, uh, weaker states vis-a-vis their civil society counterparts and have been successful in transitioning to multi-party democracy. It is not a surprise that at the moment we don't see any statement in support of the demonstrations from the Arab League. But just today, the African Union actually put forth a statement criticizing very directly the statement of Awadib ibn Uf and stating that, quote unquote, that this was an inappropriate response to the aspirations of the Sudanese people and the mobilization of civil society towards democratization. So what we see now is actually the African Union that is taking a position in opposition to this internal coup that we see in the Mm. Sudan. You have argued that the survival of the Sudanese regime is invariably tied to the loyalty of its coercive apparatus, military, police, security forces, and the militia. This strategy of the opposition seems to have been hinged on splits within the military. Hence, seeing a role for military in facilitating a transition of power. Going forward, how will that strategy look? Well, uh, that's a really important question because, uh, you know, uh, one of the key questions from the very beginning of the demonstrations was what was the end game? In other words, what was the ultimate plan on the part of the opposition and the Sudanese uh, Professional Association? and those uh, political parties and organizations that uh, signed the Declaration of Freedom and Change. It was not from the beginning just uh, to organize spontaneous street protests, sit-ins, and general strikes. I think I had mentioned in a previous program that there were a variety of different modes of contention mobilization that were carefully orchestrated and and coordinated by the Sunnis Professional Association, beginning with marches, beginning with street protests, a series of general strikes and sit-ins in throughout Khartoum and throughout the the country in the different regions. And the ultimate end game and strategy was, of course, to uh, attempt to replicate the previous democratic experiments and successes of the past of 1964 when an uprising in Sudan overthrew a military dictatorship and brought in a civilian government, 1985 when the another popular uprising by Sudanese overthrew the dictatorial regime of Jafar al-Nimeri and brought in, of course, not only a civilian government but a multi-party democracy that was, of course, then ousted by the Islamist-backed regime of Omar Bashir in the summer of 1989. So that template and that historical precedent was very much in the mind and the planning of the Sunni's Professional 
Association and the opposition. And that, of course, included in both cases, uh, eliciting and encouraging members, especially the middle-ranking and lower-ranking officers of the Sudan Armed Forces, to join the protesters, and that is to truly become a national army, or rather the, an army of the people, and uh, help to oversee not only to oust yet another authoritarian uh, leader, but also to oversee the establishment of an interim civilian government that would then draft a constitution and prepare the country for multi-party election. And so when April 6th occurred, that date was not a coincidence. April 6th, of course, is the anniversary, Sudanese know, of the 1985 intifada that overthrew the authoritarian regime of Jafar al-Nimeri. So that sit-in catalyzed really or represented the ultimate strategy of the opposition. The idea being you sit, uh, you'd have millions sitting on the square in front of the the Sudan Armed Forces General Command, and you, over time, uh, demonstrate in sheer numbers and, of course, energy, that there was a wide consensus in, in, in Sudanese civil society that this authoritarian regime must go and that the army should back the aspirations of these protesters. And that's exactly what began to happen. Only two days into the sit-in, you begin to see not only defections among middle and lower-ranking military officers, but as you know by now, I think it's been widely covered, you have uh, middle and lower-ranking military officers not only protecting the sit-in and the protesters, those who are in the, in the square, from the security and intelligence forces of the regime, but in at least two important cases, actually entering in, into violent altercations with uh, the national intelligence and security um, forces that are linked to the regime. That becomes a real turning point and because it changes the decision-making and calculations of the regime itself. It is really at that point that Awad ibn Auf and those with him decide that Omar Bashir may indeed be a liability. That is that either Omar Bashir goes and is ousted or the entire regime and its entire institutions would fall in the wake of this revolutionary moment and uprising. And it's really important to note that among the 21st or rather, let's say, 26 people that were killed following April 6th, following the sit-in, that at least five people we know we know of were soldiers of the Sudan Armed Forces that had chosen to side with the protesters. Another important element to really emphasize in this regard today is that uh, a number of mid- and lower-ranking military officers have actually been arrested by this regime after Ibn Auf made his statement. That is not widely covered. Uh, I don't think it's covered at all, at least in the Western media, but there are already purges that are ongoing of middle and, and lower-ranking military officers who, of course, the regime sees as the greatest danger to their survival. And that is extremely important to emphasize at this juncture. Sudan has faced a mounting economic crisis over the past 18 months, led by a severe shortage of foreign currency. Can you talk about Sudan's uh, lackluster economy? And more importantly, how will this transfer of power to a military regime and potential general strikes called by the opposition impact the economy and the regime's ability to rule the country? Well, this is really an important question because outside observers, especially I would say in, in the Arab region and of course in uh, Western capitals, are really concerned, and even, of course, uh, African neighbors of Sudan are concerned, and I would say rightly so in many instances, of the instability 
of the regime. I think that's a particular concern for Arab countries in, in particular, and even among Arabs in general that feel deeply about uh, their relationship to Sudanese. And that is this kind of uh, notion that uh, Sudan would devolve into something like uh, like Syria, or it would upgrade its authoritarianism like in Libya recently. And, uh, and so the fate of Sudan is something that uh, for many in the region seems to be a question mark. And this is why uh, many would uh, either directly or tacitly support perhaps a military regime or that does not include Ahmed Bashir, but offers stability for the country. Uh, one of the big problems of that kind of uh, understanding of the situation in Sudan is, number one, as I said before, that there are relatively uh, very strong and independent political parties and civil society opposition that are more than capable of stabilizing the country under uh, a democratic dispensation. But another aspect is equally important, and that is the sheer depth of the economic crisis in Sudan. It's a, a, an economic crisis of such severity uh, that no military administration that is lacking legitimacy among the majority of the population uh, can hope to really uh, remedy. And the reason for that is that the economic crisis, as reflected in, in let's say, aggregate figures of, of a $50 billion debt, inflation rate of the past two years of over 60%, is really a dramatic kind of economic crisis that no government lacking legitimacy can hope to even begin to fix. Uh, one of the the, at the root uh, cause of the economic crisis, of course, is the mismanagement of the economy, the depth on levels of corruption of the regime. And uh, as I ha may have said in, in previous programs, a policy of uh, tamkeen or empowerment that was implemented by the Islamist uh, government that, when it took power in 1989 through a military coup, it's basically a policy that uh, redirects uh, national resources towards a small political party and it's the Islamist party and its supporters and you know uh, uses uh, the state institutions to empower uh, a very small segment of Sudanese that support the Islamist project. It's kind of a political patronage. It's absolutely political patronage. But of course, uh, uh, with the depth of corruption over the last three decades, uh, you have that that has played a very important role in the economic crisis. But the real depth of the crisis becomes really apparent um, in 2011. Uh, when the South Sudan secedes, and because mo the majority of oil resources are in the South, the Khartoum regime, Ahmed Bashir's regime, loses approximately perhaps 75% of the revenue that it derived from oil during that period, roughly from perhaps uh, 1999 all the way to 2011. But the real oil wealth through the regime came from 2005 to 2011. That, of course, immediately caused a deep economic crisis, uh, resulting in, in the implementation of uh, IMF-induced austerity measures in 2011. And it is that year where you begin to see wider and wider mobilization, first against, of course, the lifting of subsidies on bread and fuel uh, that really uh, led to the price hikes in terms of commodities and those those in bread in particular and fuel also. And that begins a process or kind of a sporadic series of mobilizations and protests that begin in you know, in earnest in 2011 against uh, austerity measures, but even more importantly, you had greater anti-austerity protest in 2012 and yet again in 2013. In this period, you see not only the mobilization of youth movements and their organization and solidarity, 
stability and cohesiveness, but also you see the emergence in 2012 of the Sudanese Professional Association that begins to form. It was essentially established, initially established by actually about 200 you know, academics, but then quickly expanded uh, to incorporate professional unions, including doctors, lawyers, teachers, labor unions, uh, trade unions, giving the Sudanese Professional Association not only depth in terms of its, you know, linkage to different aspects of the labor force and civil society, but also expanded into branches uh, across the country from the eastern part of Sudan all the way to Darfur. And so it is this period where you see, as a result of the economic crisis and also the increasing authoritarian and, and violent policies, uh, coercive policies of the security forces, you begin to see the, the emergence of, of a new opposition group organized around the Sudanese Professional Association and, of course, the increasing energy and vitality and role of the youth movements, including Garifna and Sudan Change uh, Now. So that is extremely important. But it's also important to really emphasize that the protesters understand full well that the economic crisis is intimately linked to corruption and uh, and the security sector, by which I mean that uh, it is well known in Sudan among activist protesters in the entire country that the bulk of the national budget, almost upwards of almost 70% of the national budget goes into the security sector, that is the military and the paramilitary security forces established by the regime to protect people like Omar Bashir and and uh, Ibn Rauf himself as well, and uh, Salah Ghosh, and only 3% of the federal budget goes into education and even less into the health sector. So if you take that together, if you take this together, the kind of longstanding economic crisis, the kind of depth of corruption uh, of what was then the Umar Bashir uh, regime headed by Umar Bashir, but also uh, the full knowledge that uh, the majority of the nation's revenue and resources were being invested in the security sector and the military, essentially to put down insurgencies uh, in Darfur, to the west of the country, in the Anuba Mountains, in uh, southern Kurdufan, and the new uh, Blue Nile state, which borders South Sudan. And this is an extremely important point to highlight, because I'm not sure I did it highlighted before, but if you look at the Declaration of Freedom and Change that is the document that all the opposition parties and the SPA have signed, the number one priority is to resolve the ensuing conflicts in Darfur, in the Nuba Mountains, and in Blue Nile State. And this is something to highlight because it is not only the fact that uh, Ibn Of uh, and the military regime will not be able to solve the economic crisis because it's clearly a corrupt regime and does not have the legitimacy of the of the population in in any way whatsoever. It is also uh, there is absolutely no way that uh, this particular regime and this individual will, will be able to resolve the civil conflicts and civil wars in that for in the Nuba Mountains and in the Blue Nile State. Basically, you have now a de facto leader who was responsible for the greater violence in Darfur and wanted, and not only sanctioned by the US, but also the ICC for crimes against humanity, who is now head of government and is supposedly not only going to oversee a democratic transition, but also resolve a conflict such as Darfur, which he basically played a central role in instigating.
Uh, and so there is absolutely no question that this regime and this kind of formula, military regime, under the leadership of Ibn Auf or any of the other military leaders from their cabal, there is absolutely no rational reason to believe that they would actually lead the country to stability. In fact, uh, what is likely to happen if they do stay in power is continued instability that would affect not only Sudan, but the entire region, not only in Africa, but the Arab countries as well. Important point to highlight. Let's shift gears here and talk about international and regional players. Let's start with regional players first. Egypt is neighboring Sudan and has historically played an important role in Sudan. There are also Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Turkey, which all played different roles in the uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa. In fact, in 2016, Sudan uh, severed ties with Iran and participated in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. It's difficult to imagine that some of these countries, such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and UAE, were not involved in this transfer of power that just took place in Sudan. Yes, it is difficult. I would argue with you and I would agree with you that I think that they were intimately involved. Awad ibn Auf was trained in Egypt, in the military academies in Egypt, and by uh, most accounts, he was actually the classmate, one of the classmates of Sisi of Egypt. Um, there is a personal relationship between this present military leader in Sudan and Sisi of Egypt. Beyond that, of course, there are other issues associated with the Sisi and Egyptian, the Egyptian states really anxiety over the displacement of a, a military leader in Sudan and the rise of uh, a democratic uh, movement and, of course, a democratic government. Remember, I'm sure that fully aware that these countries are close not only culturally, historically, but politically. And already you have a great deal of people uh, and movements, organizations in Egyptian civil society that, of course, are watching intently their sisters and brothers in Sudan uh, waging a kind of popular mobilization that owes, in some parts, owes its uh, its energy and vitality and dynamics to the Egyptian Tahrir uprising. Uh, these countries are very closely linked, and I there's no question that there was, I mean, I can't be 100% sure, but uh, that Ibn Auf uh, did, in fact, confer with Egyptian authorities in order to discuss the issues of how to maintain the stability of the country and, of course, to maintain a military regime that would oversee such stability and you know not undermine the stability of the of the country so i think that there is no question that it's difficult for a leader like ibn auf to make a decision such as ousting omar bashir without conferring with the regional hegemon of egypt that has such great influence in terms of uh, sudanese security and domestic affairs i think that there's no question in terms of the other aspects of the regime or institutions in particular Salah Ghosh's uh, national intelligence security sector, uh, he has very close links to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. By all accounts, uh, he has uh, NISS, gets uh, funding from the United Arab Emirates. I have to corroborate that, but I think it's well known. And the support that he, he has received historically from the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia is extremely important. Um, there is also the rapid um, security forces, the paramilitary militias of that are linked to the regime, that are now part of this, uh, or possibly will be part of the Transitional Mil Military Council. And it is, uh, uh, these are the forces that have made up uh, the Sudanese troops that were sent by Bashir to Yemen to uh, support Saudi Arabia's violent campaign against the insurgency in Yemen. And those forces, about 70,000 or so, 
were recruited directly from the rapid support forces that are linked to the regime. So you have a connection, a personal and, of course, connection between Ibn Auf and Sisi. You have, of course, the longstanding Sisi and Egyptian government's caution and anxiety over the rise of a democratic movement in Egypt that would somehow influence domestic politics and encourage further mobilization in civil society in Egypt. You have Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates that have both personal ties, but even importantly, financial ties with the, with the two main security forces that are linked to the regime. And so there is absolutely no question that this decision was made. And I would be surprised if that there were not discussions prior to the decision that was made today to oust Omar Bashir and replace him with, with Ibn Rauf. So that is with respect to the Arab region, which I think is deeply influential. Uh, this is something that the opposition in Sudan knows, uh, the Sudanese Professional Association and others, that the role of Arab actors in domestic affairs, especially in this very, very historic moment, is a crucial one. What about the United States and European Union? The United States, I think, that is taking a different position, um, having followed some of the statements that they've made. I'll take the United States first. The United States, of course, has had a long history of both opposition and also cooperation with the Bashir regime. In the 1990s, uh, I don't know if your listeners uh, would be aware of this, but in the 1990s, of course, the Islamist-backed Bashir regime hosted uh, a number of different extremist radical organizations uh, throughout the 1990s. Of course, the most famous of those individuals was Osama bin Laden that uh, the Bashir regime hosted under the auspices of the Islamist leader Hassan Turabi. So it was at this time that, of course, the United States imposed economic sanctions. Uh, There was uh, a really concerted effort to isolate the the Bashir regime. At this point, there was also very close linkages to Iran. Iran was uh, extremely close uh, and provided a great deal of support during this period. Following the isolation of the Bashir regime, things altered and alliances changed in the 2000s, particularly under the Bush administration. And most specifically, the Bashir regime, out of desperation, and of course, uh, very much interested in lifting the economic sanctions imposed by the US and the European Union at the time, uh, cooperated with the United States in terms of intelligence gathering on uh, extremist organizations and counterterrorism measures. A key actor during this period, which is very very well known, of course, among those in Washington who follow Sudan and Africa and the Middle East in general, was uh, Salah Ghosh, uh, who was at that time also the head of the intelligence in Sudan. And he played a very important role in cooperating with the United States in terms of offering intelligence on a variety of different Islamist and radical organizations. Uh, That cooperation really was maintained for and continued to be maintained under the Bashir regime until very recently, uh, leading, of course, in late 2017, the United States to lift sanctions, citing Sudan's Obashir's cooperation with not only issues of humanitarian access and regional stability, but more specifically on counterterrorism. That is the kind of the short summary of the history of U.S.-Sudan relations. Uh, But more recently, with respect to the mobilization that began in December, four months of protest, you begin to see the United States taking a different position. Uh, Statements that the U.S. put forth along with its you know, Troika partners, Norway, the United Kingdom, began to criticize um, uh, human rights violations. This occurs probably within the second month of the uprisings. But in April, on April 9th, 
another statement was put forth by the American ambassador in Khartoum, uh, and it was signed and uh, agreed upon by Norway and the United Kingdom. And in that statement on April 9th, because of the sustainability, the mobilization of the protests, and different calculations in terms of Bashir's cooperation on counterterrorism, the United States essentially made a statement saying that they would actually support a political transition that protected the rule of law and democracy, indicating that uh, without directly saying so, tacit support for the protesters in their demand to have a civilian government and transition to democracy. The Sudanese Professional Association and the opposition welcomed uh, this uh, kind of statement, and it had very much to do with dialogue that was ongoing and has been ongoing between the United States and the opposition, which is a very key element. Um, and that is something that has really accelerated the change of direction with respect to the United States' relationship to the protesters. Um, of course, the opposition in Sudan would prefer that there would be another statement that was stronger, that would put unequivocal uh, pressure, diplomatic and other forms of pressure against um, the Revolutionary Military Council and Ibn Hof. And this is something that is ongoing at the moment. Uh, the Sudanese Professional Association has made it very clear that one of its most important platforms to, is to reach out to the international community in the U.S. and persuade them that the best future for Sudan and, and the stability of the region would be a legitimate government that represents the will of these millions of Sudanese, the majority of Sudanese, or I would say all Sudanese, for their aspirations in terms of a civilian government and a transition to multi-party democracy. It is, I think, the sheer size of the mobilization and the expansion and the unanimity among Sudanese uh, with respect to their core demands to overthrow this military regime and work towards democracy that I believe has compelled not only the United States but the European Union to make harsher statements criticizing the military regime and basically coming forward in support of democratic transition. They even mentioned that uh, any future relationship with Sudan, economic or otherwise, would depend on a legitimate or rather credible political transition, by which I think most would infer that that uh, means a political transition in which there would be a legitimate regime supported by the majority of, the, of Sudanese. So, Khaled, finally, what is the outlook for the protest and the protest movement in Sudan? Do you see the formation of a powerful national bloc transcends regional divides. Would such a bloc be able to go beyond removal of a handful of individuals from power and implement a transformation of the existing political and economic structure? Well, to answer the first part of your question, there is no question that there is already a very, very unprecedented unity among Sudanese across different social groups, classes, and regions. I was uh, talking to Sudanese on the phone today, and the sheer joy, and I wanted to, to mention, because I know it's not uh, always something that is emphasized enough, I think, the sheer euphoria, joy of a population that has come together across ethnicity, across race, across region, across class, in its unanimity, after three decades of a brutal authoritarian regime that has split the country into two, decimated the integrity of the, of the country and this population of demeaning and devaluing and assaulting women, and not only in the context of civil conflict, but also on the streets so with the draconian laws such as the public order law 
uh, the ethnic cleansing of 300,000 Darfurians, of course, the separation of South Sudan, the conflict and the aerial bombardments of innocent civilians in the Nuba Mountains, and of course, also in Blue Nile. It's really important to emphasize the brutality of this dictatorship in the last three decades. It is something that is hard to put into words, but Sudanese, of course, understand it. In the context of all of that violence, uh, what you have for the first time is a kind of unity that the country has not seen before. It has been something that took a lot of work on the part of the youth movements uh, and opposition groups, the Sudanese professional associations, to the point where um, Sudanese feel that they are uh, one nation as never before. So that aspect of a unity in civil society for the time being is really without question. And it is something that the entire world now is looking at. The question about the scenario to come will depend really on not only the leadership of the military, but most particularly their utilization of their security forces. Uh, and I've argued this before in this program and elsewhere, and that is it is invariably uh, dependent on the balance between the strength and the unity of the Sudanese uh, and their really commitment to the path towards democracy and the brutality that is meted out and continues even today by the National Intelligence and Security Services under Salah Ghosh, and in particular the paramilitary militia of the Rapid Support Forces that was established first in Darfur. This is the latest transmutation of the Janjaweed who were responsible for the, all the uh, killings in Darfur. So it is really this balance between you know, the violence that is going to be meted out by this regime and the forced popularity, unanimity, and the solidarity that is continuing. I would go on um, a bit of a limb here, um, I, I hope not, but to say that uh, I think that the, exact, the power of the security forces has been exaggerated in much of the coverage. And uh, the notion of a deep state in Sudan of, of the type that is similar in other neighboring countries really obscures the weakened nature of this military regime. And uh, what Sudanese activists are saying, and I'll put it in their own words, that since they were successful in putting such great pressure and in removing Omar Bashir from power after three decades of authoritarianism and rule, and of course, he's uh, one of the most savvy dictators in the region in Africa and the Arab world, um, then it is more than likely and possible, in fact, uh, for this kind of mobilization to continue in what Sudanese activists called the fall of the second regime. That is the, the fall now of the second military regime. And this is why I believe that this momentum is something that the organizers and activists are utilizing and they insist that this will lead to the transformation of the state and dismantling of this regime uh, and the transition to democratization. And they've put forth a plan, a program for that transition, of course, that's very important to emphasize. And they've always been uh, very clear and continue to be clear about the fact that they are willing to cooperate with the legitimate army of the people uh, that is restricted to defending the borders of the country and to uh, protect an interim constitution and a permanent constitution. In other words, the historic role of the army is uh, something that protesters, activists, and the opposition uh, have absolutely no issue with. Uh, but they insist, they insist that uh, there would be no acceptance of a military authoritarian regime, that this has to be an interim civilian government that would draft an interim constitution leading to multi-party democracy. And we are seeing already, unfortunately, 
and it's very likely that the secure the regime will utilize security forces of course as you know an important part of the statement i should mention uh, of the uh, ibn hof uh, today and i should have mentioned it uh, really and I'd like to emphasize it here at the end of the program, is the continuation uh, and maintenance of the state of emergency and the curfew, which of course uh, clearly indicates that this is a way to not only uh, stem the tide of mobilization, but to give carte blanche to continue to use violence against the protesters. I will um, maybe end by saying that that has not deterred the protesters. Right now, as I'm speaking to you, Sudanese continue their sit-in they continue to defy the state of emergency, and they continue to defy the curfew that has been imposed by Ibn Hof in his statement and by this military regime that are essentially the inheritors and loyalists to the former president, Ahmed Bashir. Khalid Madani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies at McGill University. He spoke with Shahram Agamir from Montreal, Canada. Till 
Juvana. True, I like now, like a Sujana. We never speak the truth, cause Lisana. Lisana, who my food, my fi Amana. Amana, he met Susa, feel corner. Al corner, my Judah, feel in the corner. I'm in the corner, I'm